This week, squeezing quantum states to make super accurate measurements. By the squeezing, it can beat this fundamental quantum limit that other atom measurements cannot. And low-fibre diets reap havoc with the diversity of our gut bugs. It does appear that multiple generations on a low, a diet low in dietary fibre does result in this deterioration that is not reversible. Plus, the challenges of studying boredom. This is The Nature Podcast for January the 14th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker. Let me suggest to observant philosophers when the meetings they attend may prove dull to occupy themselves in estimating the frequency, amplitude and duration of the fidgets of their fellow sufferers. This is an extract from a 19th century Nature article entitled The Measure of Fidget. It was written by Victorian polymath Francis Galton, and it's an early foray into the study of boredom, a topic which has piqued science writer Maggie Kirth Baker's interest. The you know, tendency to get bored is correlated with risk-taking behaviours, with a uh, tendency towards alcoholism, with um, ADHD, it's correlated with traumatic brain injury. You know, there are all of these things that seem to say that there are some big problems if you're too prone to getting bored. But boredom isn't that easy to study. For a start, how do you measure it? Galton made some suggestions. They must do so during periods both of intentness and of indifference, so as to eliminate what may be styled natural fidget. And then I think they may acquire the new art of giving numerical expression to the amount of boredom expressed by the audience generally during the reading of any particular memoir. Boredom has been difficult because it wasn't until the 80s that we had this scale for actually quantifying it and putting some kind of number to it. This scale was called the Boredom Proneness Scale, and it consists of a series of statements. And you answer a range of numbers, you know, do you feel between one and seven, how do you, how does this make you feel? And you, then you come up with a total score, and then that total score is compared to other people's total scores. I thought I'd put the boredom proneness scale through its paces, so with the help of pod stars Adam and Sharmini, we gave it a go. Okay, so um, the very first question, it is easy for me to concentrate on my activities. Well, already I'm kind of thinking, oh, can I be bothered to finish this? <laughs> so It's not got like flash animations or anything like a modern boredom test. Time always seems to be passing slowly. Oh, no, I don't agree with that. I get a kick out of most things I do. Yeah, I get a kick out of things. Wait, what do I put? Seven, strongly agree. I'm often trapped in situations where I have to do meaningless things. I feel like I can't answer this one openly uh, at my place of work. <laughs> Much of the time, I just sit around doing nothing. Does watching Netflix count? <laughs> I've achieved nothing, but I am on my laptop, mostly. Adam and Sharmini both scored pretty low on the scale, which suggests that they don't get bored very easily. I'm a bit surprised by it, actually. I thought, as the kind of person who always got bored and like my mind wanders off, um, it turns out, actually, I'm... Uh, pretty unboring person, so watch out. My score is 68, which is low. Very low, in fact. Yeah, it's quite low, yeah. I think I think it's because I I'm, I actually genuinely quite like my job. So most of my time is spent doing my job, and they're like, oh, how bored are you? Like, all day, and I'm like, no, 
I do fun things, so I'm pretty lucky. For the record, I, like Maggie, scored quite highly, suggesting that I do get bored easily. But before we start inferring things about my proneness to alcoholism and risk-taking, it's important to note that this is far from a perfect test. You know, it's subjective. Um, and so there, people have been working on all these different ways to make this a less subjective form of research. Ways like better questionnaires, or even completely different measures entirely. There have also recently been some researchers who have started trying to look for physiological signals of boredom, so things like facial expressions and posture and even back to Galton's fidget, so that you can kind of use that as an objective outside measurement of whether somebody is bored right now or not. Um, That's something that's really just kind of getting going, though. Another thing to bear in mind is exactly what you're measuring. Is it a person's proneness to becoming bored, called their trait boredom, or how bored they are at any given moment? That's called state boredom. But even if scientists do devise the perfect boredom measures, in a test, how would you reliably make someone bored? There's not one standard way that researchers make people bored, and that can lead to differing results. So you might get different levels of boredom, different responses from the same subjects by using different methods of making them bored. One trial used a specifically designed boring video of two men hanging up washing to test boredom's impact on attention, but that didn't go so well. The task that they were using for you know, to measure people's ability to pay attention was actually boring people more than the video was. So that you know, there's another place where your results can really get to be misleading if you're not all using something that's standardized. So if it's so difficult to study, why bother? You know, there's all these things that we know are connected somehow to boredom. And I think one of the things is, is that people really want to figure out how those things are connected. If we know that boredom is correlated with reduced ability to pay attention, we want to know if boredom's causing that or if it's the reduced ability to pay attention that's causing boredom, because those things have an impact on issues like safe driving. They have an impact on things like education. It's, it's one of those things where boredom seems really trivial, but it's connected to all of this stuff that impacts the economy, that impacts education, that impacts how we relate to each other. And the only way that we start to really tease apart those threads is to figure out how to better measure it and how to induce it. That was Maggie Kerth-Baker. Maggie's written a feature on boredom. Check it out at nature.com forward slash news. And in the meantime, why not find out how prone you are to getting bored? You can find the test which we did in lots of places online by searching boredom proneness scale. And if you get really bored, why not tweet us your results at Nature Podcast. Measuring things is kind of fundamental to a lot of science. We're always trying to measure things more accurately. And normally the solution is pretty obvious. Just get a better tape measure. But eventually this approach runs into a problem, Heisenberg's uncertainty relation. Heisenberg's uncertainty relation, or principle, puts a fundamental limit on how accurately you can measure a particle's properties. For example, take a particle's position and momentum. We can think of their uncertainty as being represented as a square. The width of the square is our uncertainty in the particle's momentum, and the height is the uncertainty in position. Heisenberg's uncertainty relation says that no matter how hard we try, we can't change this overall area of uncertainty. 
But what we can do is squeeze the square into a wide, short rectangle while keeping the area the same. Now, we're super uncertain about the particle's momentum, represented by the rectangle's width. But we can measure the position, the rectangle's height, much more accurately than before. This is called squeezing the particle's states. Leonie Merck, Nature's Fundamental Physics Editor, joins us in the studio now. Leonie, that's kind of the theory for how you squeeze states, but there's a paper out this week that actually does it. What were they squeezing? So this um, paper uses atoms, ensembles of atoms. So they actually don't squeeze positional momentum. They squeeze spin states. They do spin squeezing. And you can have spins in different directions. And two spins in different directions would exactly be like momentum and position. And you can do the same there. Okay, so they're increasing uncertainty of the spin in one direction so they can be more certain about it in another direction. This begs the question to me, why? What are they hoping to achieve by increasing the certainty? So ultimately, these um, states that they look at are um, very useful, for example, in atomic clocks. Um, in atomic clocks, you also need to, to make very, very precise measurements, you know, to measure time very precisely. And uh, actually, they do demonstrate an atomic clock with their new technique here, which is also quite impressive, has quite an impressive performance. But I understand people have uh, squeezed spin states before. So what do they do here that kind of builds on previous work? So that's true. Um, it's not fundamentally a new technique that they use, but um, they just do everything a lot better. So previously, the maximum sort of squeezing that you could get out of a similar sort of system was an improvement by 10 decibel of noise. And here they get 20 decibel of noise. So that's, that's quite a pronounced improvement. Well, Leonie, I gave Mark Kasovich, who led the research, a call to find out how they made such great improvements compared to the previous work. Well, I would say we paid attention to details. In, in a, a squeezing measurement, you have to build your apparatus to be essentially free of classical noise. And in our case, this meant making sure that uh, the lasers we used to uh, interrogate the atoms performed at you know, kind of their theoretical limits. And so that was a, a major challenge that took us uh, quite literally years to uh, work through. You worked, you said, for years to try and build up these improvements on previous work. Were you surprised by the levels of improvements you were able to, to get? I was surprised. And uh, some of the pioneering work was published around 2010. I, I, I was looking at the experiment we were doing and thinking, you know, it's going to be very difficult to uh, advance beyond what has been demonstrated in, in that work. And uh, you kind of just made the list and said, well, no, here we can, we can improve on this, we can improve on this, we can improve on this. And it's one of these uh, classic situations of a, a factor of two here and a factor of two there and another factor of two, and pretty soon you're doing 10 times better than had previously been done. And you know, kind of when uh, you put together these complicated experiments, when a lot of things have to go right, you, as a, as a realist, you know that, well, some, some things aren't going to work as well as you thought. And it all came together in this case. Back to you now, Leonie. It seems like a big technological breakthrough, and the authors are hoping that atomic clocks will take advantage of these techniques. But don't atomic clocks already operate incredibly accurately without needing to use squeezed states? By the squeezing it can beat this fundamental quantum limit that other atom measurements cannot 
cannot beat. And this um, particular manuscript is one of the first that really shows that we have the skills now to beat the already super engineered normal states that we've had in, in cold atom measurements. Has this kind of squeezing of quantum states proven to be useful in the real world yet? If, if you call gravity gravitational wave measurement the real world, yes. <laughs> um, so LIGO, which is a gravitational wave experiment, um, uses squeezed states, but but uh, squeezed states of light, um, not not uh, involving any atoms, to enhance their measurements beyond the quantum limit. That was Leonie Merck explaining squeezed states. And before her, we heard from Mark Kasovich from Stanford University, whose squeezy paper can be found at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in the news chat, the rumours delaying an Indian neutrino detector. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Sharmini Bundel. Global warming could hamper power production at hydroelectric plants if the rivers and streams that feed the dams become less full. Other power plants could also suffer if they're water cooled because water is likely to warm up and won't do the job as efficiently. A team based in the Netherlands modelled thousands of hydroelectric dams and power plants that rely on water. For the dams, their capacity to produce electricity fell by up to 3%, and for the water-cooled plants by up to 12%. Efficiency measures could hopefully reduce these impacts. Nature Climate Change has that paper. Next time your immune system fights off a stomach bug, thank your ancient relatives. It seems as if some of the genes we inherited from them could have boosted our ability to resist bacterial infections though the same genes may also raise the risk of allergies. Researchers looked in modern genomes for signs of ancestral DNA from Neanderthals and Denisovans. They found a cluster of genes involved in sensing and responding to infections. Two versions from Neanderthals and one from Denisovans, common in different modern human populations. A second study supported the link between these genes and immunity. Both papers are in the American Journal of Human Genetics. Justin and Erica Sonnenberg are one of those couples who somehow managed to both live and work together. They're at Stanford University's School of Medicine. Their focus? The microbes in our gut. They want to work out how to keep our gut microbiota healthy, but according to Justin, their work doesn't stop in the lab. We have this microbial organ living inside of us, our gut microbiota, And this community is not only important for our digestive health and the health of our intestines, it's um, really connected to all facets of our biology. This week, the Sonnenbergs have published a paper about dietary fibre's influence on our resident bugs. Nature's Marion Turner gave them a call. Here's Justin. I think the the question of diversity really intrigued us because there have been um, several studies that have come out showing that traditional populations of humans that um, 
uh, may be an indicator of what an ancestral state was like for for humans, what our ancient ancestors housed in their gut, show that they have uh, a marked increase in diversity compared to people living in industrialized countries. And so that really points towards uh, a, a recent change that's happened with modernization and us losing diversity in our gut microbiota. Then the question becomes, what, how meaningful is this for our health? And could this be linked to some of our, our modern diseases and health problems? Where does our diet come into this picture? We know that that diet is a, a major lever in influencing the gut microbial community. And we know that dietary fiber um, these complex carbohydrates that are found in different types of plants are a major fuel source for the gut microbiota. And we also know that in the Western diet that we have greatly reduced our dietary fiber intake. And so that, um, you know, what amounts to on the order of a tenfold reduction in the food source that nourishes our microbial community, um, we were curious how this influences the community and whether this could be a, a factor in reducing diversity. All right, so maybe we could turn to Erica now and, and you could tell me, Erica, in, about this particular study that you've been working on and how you directly tested the effect of a low-fibre diet on the gut microorganisms. So what we did was feed mice a diet that was low in dietary fibre or microbiota-accessible carbohydrates and watch what happened to their microbiota over time. And we found that a diet low in microbiota-accessible carbohydrates resulted in a less diverse microbiota. And within a single generation, if we return those mice then to a high-fiber diet, most of that diversity recovered, although it wasn't a perfect recovery. So then we carried this experiment out over multiple generations. And what we found was microbiota diversity dropped more and more with each generation. And by the fourth generation, when we returned them to the high fiber diet, there was almost no recovery of these lost microbes. So there appeared to have been an extinction of microbes that occurred from the first generation to the fourth generation consuming a low fiber diet. Does that mean that we're already doomed because our parents and our grandparents haven't been eating enough fiber already? Yeah, I mean, it does appear that Multiple generations on a low, a diet low in dietary fiber does result in this deterioration that is not reversible. And it makes a lot of sense when we look at these traditional populations. Now, there have been eight studies looking at traditional populations around the globe. These are populations that are, you know, separated by oceans, haven't, you know, had a, a, a common uh, relative in probably thousands of years. And what we see is that their microbiota is not only more diverse than ours, but they share species between each other that we don't see in the Western world. And so the question is, is you know, the lack of these species that we're missing in the Western world, is this a result of the fact that now we've been several generations on a diet that is low in dietary fiber relative to these traditional populations? And I guess we don't really know what those species would be able to do for us. Exactly. And so that's, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, these, these species that are no longer found in Western populations, how important are they for human health? Um, might these species be, you know, missing parts of our biology that could potentially improve trajectories of, of Western diseases 
or you know, might these species of microbes that we don't have anymore, if we would reintroduce them into Western populations, may, maybe they wouldn't play nice with the microbes that we do presently have. So that's a big question: is determining whether or not you know we we need these microbes, how important they are, and you know, even reintroducing these microbes in the context of our Western lifestyle, if these microbes would even you know, be able to persist in our gut at this point. That was microbiome power couple Erica and Justin Sonnenberg talking to Marion Turner. If you want to learn more about your own gut bugs and how to care for them, Erica and Justin have written a book called The Good Gut. News time now, and joining me in the studio is Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver. Hi, Celeste. Hi, Noah. So first, we're heading to India and to a particle physics project that's gotten a few problems. Yeah, that's right. The project in question is the Indian Neutrino Observatory, which um, has got the go-ahead to be built and has received um, billions in funding. Construction was scheduled to have started by now, but the whole project's been delayed by a series of setbacks and most recently some um, fears by local environmentalists and local people that this detector, which is to detect neutrinos, is potentially going to contaminate the environment. Rumours even that it was going to have underground nuclear weapons or that in some way is going to emit some kind of nuclear waste. Now we'll come to what the detector is aiming to do in a moment, but first, these claims, they seem quite quite wild. How, how true are they? There's really no truth to any of the claims. There are other neutrino detectors um, in the world already, and they're sort of pure science experiments. They're put underground because that's how you achieve shielding from cosmic rays, which could interfere with the experiment. Um, But there's nothing sinister about them at all. This observatory just seems to be a magnet for these kind of unfounded claims. So what is it that this detector is trying to do that's different to other detectors around the world? So it wants to solve a really central and fundamental question in particle physics, which is working out the exact mass of the three known neutrino types. Neutrinos for a long time were thought to have no mass. Since we've known they have some mass, pinning down their exact masses, which are very, very tiny, hasn't been done and is really, really hard to do. And it's not just about sort of setting that straight. Those uh, answers to that question about the mass feed into much bigger mysteries, including the matter-antimatter imbalance in the universe. So big questions in physics to get answers to, and questions that Indian scientists, I assume, are really raring to get answers to. Is this delay frustrating? It's very, very frustrating for the Indian scientists who are heading up the project. And in fact, one reason we've written this story this week is they are becoming increasingly worried about competition from China, um, which is also planning to build a neutrino detector to solve similar mysteries. And they're saying that if they don't get the go-ahead to build this thing soon, a lot of the um, scientific potential for it to be groundbreaking is going to be lost because they'll just be ceding way to China. So is this an all or nothing situation? Does this have to start being built right now? That would be the scientist's preference. However, there's also people that say even if it's delayed, as long as it gets built at some point, it will still have value. What's being done to try to soothe the concerns of the people that are around the project? A lot of the concerns probably stem from general mistrust of the state and the scientific establishment. And certainly um, scientists from the observatory have visited schools and held community meetings to try and counter those misconceptions. Things will be coming to a head soon. A high court in Chennai has said that it won't 
allow the project to go forward until the Tamil Nadu Pollution Control Board has given its consent. That would normally be a routine process. It's been dragged out over nine months, but at some point it will happen and scientists will be hoping to influence the people um, who make that decision. And so from a lot of problems at the beginnings of one project, uh, maybe the beginnings of the end of a long-standing problem that's quite sadly existed in Vietnam, which is trying to identify the dead from the Vietnam War. Yeah, although the United States has repatriated and identified most of the people that it lost in the Vietnam War, Vietnam has identified just a few hundred people so far of an estimated half a million who are still missing. And although the war has been over for 40 years, people there remain desperate to acquire the remains of their family members. There are something like half a million people that are unaccounted for that may now be found in shallow graves across Vietnam. How is this project aiming to identify them? It's um, inspired, or it's going to borrow expertise anyway, from the effort to identify those who went missing in the uh, wars in Bosnia-Herzegovina in the 90s using DNA, but there's many challenging things about using the DNA from bones in Vietnam. For one, they've been now in the ground for 40 years um, and there's a lot of degradation that happens. Another problem is the climate in Vietnam is not conducive to preserving the DNA. Um, There's also micros and things that get in there that can inhibit the DNA amplification, which is necessary if you want to study it. But the Vietnam government has teamed up with a company in Hamburg, Germany, that has come up with a plan um, and they think they can succeed in extracting useful amounts of DNA and ambitiously they're aiming to identify all the missing. And they're using a sort of a DNA extraction kit that's been developed. Yeah, that's right. The kit is developed specifically for this purpose. It's also these sorts of kits are useful for extracting very, very ancient DNA. So there is kind of broad interest in this kind of technology. The kit sort of releases chemicals that wash away things that inhibit DNA amplification and also um, have ways to powderize bones and uh, powderize the cells as well that the bones are made of and extract that DNA. Now, getting the DNA is the first step in this process, but the next step is trying to match that up to the people that, that, that were killed during that conflict. How do you do that? It's very, very difficult, um, especially as, sadly, in some cases, whole families may have been wiped out. Um, people may not have lived long enough to have children, um, so they may not have the really close relatives that would make it easier. But the Vietnam effort is launching an outreach project that will aim to set up a big DNA bank to pull in the more distant relatives. Now, this seems like a very big undertaking. Do they have any sort of time scale of, of, of how long it might take them to, to achieve this very, very large goal. The first thing that needs to happen um, is that the three labs that the government has designated to carry out this work, they all need to be upgraded. The first of those is happening right now, those upgrades, and also scientists and staff from that lab are going to Hamburg and also to Sarajevo to have training. So once that lab is up and running, which should happen this year, and then the other two should be up and running by 2017. The hope is that they'll be able to identify between 8,000 and 10,000 people a year. OK, well, thanks very much, Celeste. And more on both those stories at nature.com forward slash news.
That's about it for this week. Tune in next week to find out what happens when domestic chickens go wild. You'll also find out what happens when Kerry gets a chance to work as many egg puns as possible into a script. And make sure to head over to Twitter, where Nature News has reached one million followers. To celebrate, we're gathering pictures of your research under the hashtag ShowUsYourScience, so we can see some of the amazing work our listeners get up to. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. 